Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we want this time to be helpful and useful for making us more like Your Son. So use this means to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I got to say, my brothers and sisters, the Johnson and my brother, Billy, you know, all I heard after they were done was, you know, and like, you're crying, I'm not crying, you know, I got something in my eye, it was just crazy time, but it's exciting to hear all the ways that God is at work in our church, amen. I mean, I could just explode (laughs) in worship, and I'm just so thankful to be here with all of you this morning. You know, it was about six years ago that I was invited to a birthday party for a little girl of a close friend. She was turning two years old. So I did what any single male would do when you're invited to a little girl's birthday party, and that's go to the Meyer Barbie aisle. So I went into Meyer, went down the Barbie aisle, which was stacked with things that were pink and purple, and came down, find a, found a Barbie that was coated in glitter. I think I'm still washing the glitter off my hands today. And uh, went home, wrapped the gift, and went to the party. So I, I, I go into this house. We're sitting down on a couch. People are gathered. There's a huge pile of gifts. The parents set the little girl down. They then pull out my present. You know that feeling when someone's going to open your gift? You're like super excited. That was me because I picked out the Barbie, that's a feat for a 20-year-old single dude. And so I'm standing there waiting to see what she's going to do as she opens this gift. So the parents open the gift, oh, it's a Barbie. She has no idea what it is because it's two years old. My wife was like, why would you give a two-year-old a Barbie? Because I'm a dude, that's what we do. And so they give her the gift and she's freaking out. They, They open up the Barbie, they give the little girl the Barbie, and then the craziest thing happened. As they give the little girl the Barbie, Literally, no joking. She takes the Barbie, throws it, and begins playing with the box. <laughs> which, which led me to think, you know, I ran on like a $100 a week budget, and 95 of that went to McDonald's. And so the other five goes to things like this. And, and I'm sitting there thinking in my head, no joke, if, if I would have known that you would have enjoyed the box more than the Barbie, I would have just gotten you a box. But here's the question, why Why are little children enthralled by the simplest of things? Why? G.K. Chesterton once said that all a child needs to be drawn into a story is four words, once upon a time. Why? Because children have a sense of wonder that most people that grow old do not have. As we get older and live our lives, we gradually lose the wonder 
we once had. A box is no longer a mystical wonderland, it's just a box. A story needs more detail and action in order to draw us in. And if that Netflix show is not great in the first 10 minutes, we're not watching it. All because we've lost our sense of wonder. Now, it's one thing to lose your wonder over a box. It's quite another to lose your wonder over the Bible. All of us, all of us are in danger of of reading the Bible with wonderless hearts, such that what used to fascinate now bores. What used to captivate is now dull. And my friend, if that is where you find yourself this morning, let me invite you to examine John chapter 1, verse 18. And in John chapter 1, verse 18, we will this morning together make two discoveries about God. Two discoveries about God that are meant to awaken fresh wonder in our hearts for God as we reflect on the glory of the gospel. So, full disclosure, here's my aim. This is my aim. The sermon was a success if this happens. If you leave this place with this thought resounding in your heart and mind, I know God. I know God. So that's our goal, and verse 18 is the means. Look with me, John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. No one. This isn't hard to understand what it means at first glance. No one has ever seen God. But in the original language, this is an emphatic statement. It can literally be translated to say the following. God, no one has seen ever. God, no one has seen ever. Simply put, there has not been a single person in the history of the world that has ever seen God. No one. And the reason I think this is so fascinating is because most of you are here today because you believe in God. And here's the thing, the whole Bible says you've never seen him. Take, for example, a couple of passages of Scripture. The first, 1 Timothy 6, verse 15 to 17. These will be on the screen so you can follow along. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Here it is. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, here it is, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. Again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. 
Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. He, God, said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then finally, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but here it is, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So we, we must ask then the question, why is it that no one can see God? Why is it? Well, at a foundational level, we can't see God because He's a spirit. I think it's about a week or two weeks ago, the, here in our next-gen ministry, the children were learning this catechism. Here's the question, who is God? Answer, God is a spirit and He doesn't have a body. But when we dig even deeper into the Bible, we find that there is a far greater reason that we cannot see God, which leads us to our first discovery about Him, which is this, the holiness of God, the holiness of God. Some of you might be familiar with Exodus chapter 33 in the Old Testament when Moses received the commandments. He again, he asked God to see his glory, and God responds in verse 20. We read it just a few minutes ago. He says, you cannot see my face. Why? For man shall not see me and live. Or perhaps you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, pretty popular passage. When Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord, we read that the angelic host they're floating around in the throne room of God, have to literally cover their eyes because they cannot see God. Why? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, they cry. Brothers and sisters, the, the reason why no man can see God, here it is, is because he is so gloriously holy that sinners cannot even look at him without perishing. If you were to see God this morning, you would perish. That's how holy God is. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, he exhorts God's people by saying, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So let me ask you, how do you view God this morning? When you think about God, is that what comes to your mind? Consuming fire, holy God that no sinner can see or behold? R.C. Sproul is known for saying that, that everyone is a theologian because everyone has a view of God. So the question then this morning is not, do you have a view of God? The question is, is your view of God right? And I'm convinced that all people hold one of four views of God. One of four views of God, all of you this morning, myself included. The first view of God is this, no view. These are the people that claim God is non-existent. 
He isn't real. He's, he's a made-up celestial being that frankly seems ridiculous to believe in. Perhaps you find yourself here this morning in North Indy or here at Greenwood, and you say, that's me. Can I just say, I'm so happy you're here? And, and, and I, I really believe that God brought you here to this place for a reason. Keep listening. So the first, no view. The second, a wrong view. These are the people that believe a variety of things about God, that He's the Creator, He's not Lord. He's not loving, He's all judgment. He's one with His creation, and on and on and on we could go. Serves as a great reminder for all of us, doesn't it, friends, that that it is through His Word that we learn the truth about who God is. Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying the quickest way to avoid error is to embrace truth. So, so let me encourage you this morning. Read your Bible. Love the Bible. Study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Talk with others about the Bible. What's your plan for the next year in knowing your Bible? Because In God's providence and in his wisdom, he has given us his word so that we might know who he is truly. So what's your plan? Let's be be Bible people here at College Park. Are we in agreement with that? Let's just be Bible people that love the Bible because we want to know who he is. So the first view is no view. The second view is wrong view. The third is a small view. These are the people that believe God does exist, but that He isn't sovereign or all-powerful. These are the people who view God as nothing more than the man upstairs. He's there when we need Him and if we need Him. Like a genie in a lamp that we summon whenever we might need Him. But can we just all be honest? We tend to view God like that, all of us. And and the reason why many of us often view God in this way is because we tend to think of God as just a bigger version of ourselves. In his book, Radical, David Platt expounds on this when he writes the following. We Americans tend to mold God into our own image. He's beginning to look a lot like us because after all, that is who we're most comfortable with. The danger now is when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, it may not actually be worshiping the God of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. Brothers and sisters here at North Indy and here at Greenwood, if God is just a slightly bigger version of us, we have no hope. We have have no hope for freedom from our sin, justice in the age to come, or eradication of all wickedness because we have no power to do such things. 
If God is just a slightly bigger version of us, we have no hope. And this is why, my friends, why we must seek to have the fourth view of God, which is this, a biblical view. A biblical view. We, we need, we need, I stress, we need to know and teach others that God is a holy, powerful, sovereign God who takes no counsel from no man. He stretches the heavens like a curtain and is seated enthroned above the heavens. He does all he pleases as he pleases as he pleases. He takes no counsel from man because he is in and of himself all wise. He is sustaining all things, orchestrates all things, and knows all things. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the king of all kings, the owner of all things. Brothers and sisters, our God is a consuming fire. That is who God is. And that is why John says in John chapter 1, verse 16, no one has ever seen God. But it's the next few words that John writes that should absolutely shock us. He goes on, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is this only God at the Father's side? None other than God's Son, Jesus Christ. But notice that John doesn't refer to him as God's Son, but as the only God. John, John, see, John wants us to know that Jesus is not just another prophet, priest, or king. No, the whole point of the Gospel of John is so that you and I know this. Jesus is God, and there is no other. And where is he? At the Father's side. The the word for side in the original language can literally be translated to mean lap, chest, or bosom. It's the same word used in John 13 where You remember one of the disciples is reclining at the table close to Jesus, and what is he doing? He's reclining on his chest, at his side. The the word connotes intimacy, affection, and familiarity. As one commentator said, it's as if Jesus was the very heart of God the Father. And this, my friends, is the mystery of the Trinity. That the Son loves the Father, Father loves the Son, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But you can still say with complete confidence, Jesus is the only God because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And that ought to blow your mind. I had a friend recently come up to me, he said, I just can't understand the Trinity. I said, welcome to the Club of Church History. When you do write a book, it'll be a bestseller. But it's a reminder that the Trinity is not a problem to solve, but a reason to worship. If we had a God that we could solve or figure out, that's not a God. We need a God who is incomprehensible, yet knowable. And that is who we have 
in the Holy Trinity. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Notice the last phrase of verse 18. He has made him known. He's made him known. The phrase, he has made him known, is rich in meaning. In fact, you should underline it in your Bible. The Greek word means to retell, to exegete, or to narrate a story. The same word used in Luke 24, verse 35, when the disciples, quote, told what had happened on the road to Emmaus. Same word. They told the story. So, so, so what is John saying? He is simply saying what Jesus would later say in John chapter 14, verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. In other words, if you want to know what the invisible God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the exegesis of God the Father. He's the sermon of God. John is saying that the invisible God, that the one no one has ever seen, can now be known through Jesus of Nazareth. Is anybody bored by that? Because this ought to blow your mind. I mean, imagine saying that about anyone else. Mom and Dad, I want to introduce you to my boyfriend. He's really special. When you look at him, you see God. Freak out, right? Or imagine if, um, if I came up here and stood up this morning and said, I'm so glad to be here and to serve as one of your pastors. I want to lead, shepherd, and preach God's word. Oh, and one more thing. When you see me, you see God. Yeah, leave that church when that happens. <laughs> John, John is saying that if, if you see Jesus, you see God. I mean, this is so ridiculous that C.S. Lewis said that the person that claims to be God is either a lunatic, a liar, the devil of hell, or he is God. So you read John 118, no one has seen God, the only God has made him known. And you ask, how do you see an invisible God? And John raises his hand and says, I know, I know. Look at him and points to Jesus. This leads us to our second discovery about God, which is this, the heart of God. The heart of God. It is through the Father sending the Son, that we learn two truths about the heart of God. Truth number one, God hates sin. God hates sin. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. Beginning in verse 25 to 26. So, so why did God the Father send God the Son? It's the question that's looming. In Romans 3, verse 25 to 26 gives us an answer. 
Romans 3, verse 25. This, sending Jesus, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you know what this means? It it means that God's glory was so despised by sinners like you and me that he had to vindicate his own name for the sake of his glory. To put it another way, God hates sin because he loves his glory. Why does he hate sin? Because sin, in its essence, is failing to love God's glory above all else. Loving your kids, your spouse, your friends, your job, your health, your Xbox, or anything else above God's glory is cosmic treason against this glorious God. Why? Because God is worthy, as we sang earlier, of all glory from all peoples because he is the most beautiful reality in all of the universe. He's worthy of all of it. So God hates sin and loves his glory, so he sends his son, which reveals the second truth about the heart of God, that God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Back to John 1.18. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Listen, when John writes, he has made him known, he doesn't mean that through Jesus you can merely know about God. That you can gather facts and information about this God. No. He means, John chapter 1, verse 14, 14, that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. In other words, God did not reveal himself to be studied, but savored. He did not reveal himself to be examined, but enjoyed. To to put it frankly, John 1.18 means simply this. God is made known to be known. God is made known to be known. So let me ask, is anyone amazed by this this morning? God is made known so that you can know him. You will hear no better news for the rest of your life. The truth that God is made known to be known is especially helpful and good news for two groups of people. First, those that don't know God's love. Maybe you find yourself here this morning and as the great theologian Johnny Lee once said, You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. 
You've tried relationship after relationship, job after job, sin after sin, and all of it has left you wanting. Did anybody hear our brother's testimony this morning? It's like drinking from an empty well. So my friend, can I just ask you, when will you stop trying to drink from a well that has no water? When? John 1.18 is like, is like a flashing road sign pointing to Jesus saying, come drink the well that will never run dry. Come drink. Or as J.C. Ryle said, the love of Christ towards his people is a deep well which has no bottom. My friend, today you can turn from your sins and embrace Christ by faith as he embraces you with his love. You could do that today. So come. The second group of people, this is especially good news, that God loves sinners, is for those that doubt God's love. Perhaps you're here this morning and you would say, I'm a Christian, but I often wonder if God loves me. After all, I sin in so many ways and, and I feel so unworthy. And you wonder, how can I know that God loves me? Brother and sister, John 1.18 is a resounding yes to that question. God made himself known to be known, not while we were righteous. But, as Paul would later say in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still good churchgoers, or cleaned up in our Sunday's best. No, what's it say? That while we were still what? Sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the thing, you did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. As a matter of fact, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. And other than that, you contributed nothing. Jesus did it all on your behalf. Such that as we sang earlier, God's making us more like him, and one day we're going to get to heaven. What's our name? Righteous because of what Christ has done. So brothers and sisters, as John would later write in 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. And listen, I'm just head over heels for this kind of stuff. Hope you are too. I mean, it's this news that should make Christians the most glad and giddy people in all the universe. In all the universe. I mean, think of all the things that God has done for us. He's given us life. Awesome turkey a couple days ago. He's forgiven us of our sins. He has secured for us eternity such that we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. And listen, if I die, it's gain. Only Christians can say that. 
And we have been, listen, we have been given the promise that one day we will see him. This past week, I was traveling, doing some flying, and I sat next to a man who was dressed in military garb. So we got to talking on the way to our destination, and as we got into conversation, I found out that he was heading home for the first time in two years. First time in two years. So I asked him a plethora of questions, and then I, as we were getting off the plane, I said, brother, what's the thing you're looking forward to most about being back home? And he looked me straight in the eye with a smile on his face, and he said, I'm going to see my dad. Christian, 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because, listen, we shall see him as he is. You are going to see God. Such that Revelation says that we won't need sun because our God will be the light of the world forever and ever. So let me remind you that there is coming a day when we who behold God by faith, our faith will one day be sight. And we will see him as he is. Why? All because the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this should cause us to leave this place saying, I know God forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, what would we do without your word? You've been so kind to us today to give us a glimpse of who you are. Help us to be people that know you truly and love you deeply. Thank you for the promise that for those of us who behold you by faith, one day our faith will be made sight and that we will see you as you are. We are so grateful. As you sit here, would you just would you just take a moment with me right where you are and thank God silently that he has made himself known to you? For those of us that know God, would you ask him to help you be amazed by the truth that you know him? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know God. Would you ask him to continue to reveal himself to you so that you can know him? Father, we are a grateful people. We pray this together now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.